0: Hey, how's it going? I'm Nick, and I'm your host on the Echo Academy podcast, a podcast dedicated to uncovering helpful tools and strategies that can help make your quality of life at work better. On today's show, we find out what it takes to reach peak performance at work. And to help us do that is our guest, Troy Engel. Troy currently serves as head of academies and clubs for Sports Singapore. In his role, he directs pathway development across multiple sports through programming at the nation's sports centers. Prior to his arrival in Singapore, Troy served as a sports coach and sports administrator for over 30 years in the United States and abroad. Most recently, he served as the head coach of the men's and women's track and field team at West Point, the United States Military Academy. In addition, Troy is an internationally recognized lecturer in track and field coaching and has served as the Chair of Coaches Education for USA Track and Field. Troy also served on the coaching staff of numerous US national track and field teams, most recently serving as the Men's Endurance Coach at the 2016 Olympics in Rio and holds the distinction of being one of only two Americans who have coached at both the Olympic and Paralympic Games having served as the head coach of the US team at the 2008 Paralympics in Beijing who better to talk to about reaching peak performance if you'd like to find out more about Troy and this episode you can go to echo.academy/troy that's e k h o . a c a d e m y forward slash t-r-o-y. We've got a meaty discussion today, so without further ado, here's my interview with Troy Engel. All right, Troy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, great to be here. So today, it's really just an opportunity to learn from someone who's, you know, been through quite a bit uh, in terms of, you know, the athletics field or the sports field. Um, you've coached the U.S. Paralympic team. Right. Um, you've also coached the United States Military, um, acad- uh, sorry, the United States Military Academy track and field team as well. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. I'm just curious because. These are probably the top, top athletes you'll probably see in America, let alone the world. I'm curious, when you see these athletes, what do you notice about the mindset of these, of these athletes in general? And then we can talk about the peak ones as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a great question because I do think there's a lot of similarities around peak performance. Um, and, I, and, and I've had a kind of an interesting career that's given me um, some interesting snapshots into it at various times. I truthfully spent most of my career in coaching, and I'm now in my late 50s, so I spent, until coming to Singapore about five years ago, I spent virtually my entire career at the university level in the United States coaching sport of track and field. But quite a bit of it was at what, what they call the Division Three level okay. in the U.S., which is non-scholarship athletics. So it's kids that choose their school not because they're going to get an athletic scholarship. They choose it based on their academic performance. Um, some of them can be exceptionally competitive. I mean, there have been a number of Olympic medalists who have come out of those programs who have who have made a decision that they just want to make their academics their primary focus rather than their sport. Right. But I think I spent the first 20 years or so of my career coaching kids who had a better chance of getting a Rhodes Scholarship or a medical degree than... than an Olympic medal or making an Olympic team. And so I've, 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 I've seen kids who have been absolutely the best and brightest in their academic field and gone on to amazing things. I, I, I mean, uh, without exaggeration, you know, world-class physicians, uh, Supreme Court uh, appearances as a lawyer, wow. great doctors, great lawyers, great teachers, great public servants. Um, who, who really had a commitment to excellence? And then I've also been lucky enough that I've that I have coached both at the Olympic and Paralympic level. So I've seen world class athletes. When I was a coach of the 2008 Paralympic team in track and field, so these are very unique athletes who have, who have all of some kind of an impairment, physical impairment, um, who have really risen to the top of their game. And then in 2016 with the U.S. Olympic team in Rio, who those were really literally the, the legitimately cream of the crop in the sport of track and field in the world. And then my time at West Point, I dealt with a group of kids that you know, came in kids and left officers in the United States Army and within about a year, almost without exception, were deployed into combat and, and had gone on to become military leaders. So I've seen folks that have come from pretty disparate sports backgrounds, but all were kids that were pretty unique in the way that they focused on being great at something. Um, and, and I think that it's not much different. I mean, there were some, uh, kids at the different ends of the spectrum who were not the most gifted of athletes, but, but, um, approached their sport with the same vim and vigor that they approached their their academics that ended up later in their career leading them to be a leading heart surgeon. And at the other end you had kids on the, the world of sport who were probably never ever going to graduate number one in their class <laughs> uh, but had these elements of, of passion and, and commitment that I think if they'd ever had an academic interest, they could have channeled that that kind of drive and that fire right. um, to become, you know, a Nobel laureate. So it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. I think the, the, there are a lot of key elements to success that run across academics and athletics and and, and life. I think.
0: Well, because you mentioned uh, Division Three. And so those guys didn't have an academic. I mean, a sports scholarship. Um, I'm curious for those who don't have a sports scholarship and they are in the in that track and field team. um, Do they put the same amount of effort as you would someone who has a track scholarship, for example, in a division one? And I'm curious because the reason why I'm asking this is because I want to know if you. To be the best at something, do you have to sacrifice something? So, in essence, do you have to sacrifice academics, your academics, for sports excellence, and vice versa? Yeah, I
1: think the the easy answer is to the question: Do you have to sacrifice something? The answer is yes. I mean, but I think um, in in the university setting in the U.S., for me, the answer was simple: uh, they could not be your typical student in terms of their social life. Right. Um, so they there was no question at a Division three level where a kid was paying their own tuition. And I don't think there should, frankly, be this kind of conflict in any academic setting that you're there first and foremost to be a student. But um, and that, that's always got to be your priority when you make when you have to make hard choices, you academics should always win. But there's a lot of hours in the day, and there is a lot of energy in a person's life. Right. So I think what I would always challenge kids to do is, okay, if we if we take the fact that your academics is your first priority, and West Point's a great example. I mean, these kids were in the military. I mean, they weren't there to play sports; they were there ultimately to become an army officer. You know, okay, that that's the given. But then you got to find something else to keep yourself busy and to keep yourself kind of. Uh, engaged and to keep your skills honed and so if it's sport that you want to do then throw your, your enthusiasm into that as well okay. and it may mean that you don't get to hang out and stay up late talking to your friends as much as you want because you need to get to bed but there is an energy cost involved with sports right. that, that you need to, to pay back by getting rest and so it, it was a hard balance um, but there have been lots and lots of instances of people that, that have demonstrated globally that they, can be, that they can be really, really good and top in a number of things, but not too many. I mean, there's no question about it. If you want to be great at things, it always comes with a price. You've got to try to sacrifice something because you've ultimately, time and energy are probably the only two finite
0: currencies that we have, right? And... What do you think they have that you know allows them to 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 not only excel at both but to do it consistently and almost um, acknowledging the other sacrifices because it's 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 I would say it's it's almost a hard thing to do, especially if if, there's no certainty that, you know, any any of it is given. So, for example, let's say you're a Division three athlete. And I come back to that because I think that's the most relatable to all of us, yeah. where we all don't have this scholarship either way, both right. either in school or in athletics or, or any sports for that matter. Um, what is it that drives them to, you know, be at the top? Without, and even though they know, even though there's this acknowledgement almost that they're not the creme de la creme and they're not right. going to have a career. I, I, I think, from my perspective, um,
1: one of the real common traits of people that have shown mastery or excellence in something they've done it's a real desire to keep getting better, right? Um, and to not accept where they are to kind of embrace the tension between where they are currently and where they wanna be and to be able to use that to motivate them to get better. Um, I'll share with you a story at one point in time, many, many years ago, I had a, I, I read an article by a university president um, and he talked about how winning and losing was not at all important to their sports teams, mm-hmm. that, uh, that, that's not why they did sports. It was not to, to force people to embrace winning as the only goal. And I agree with that. I mean, you can you can still experience defeat and gain from it. Right. But as I read that, I thought to myself, this is a very prominent engineering school, I thought to myself, I would like to write that president and ask him for the list of every bridge ever designed by one of their engineers. Because if, if somehow... The verbal message is, you know what, success is not important. It doesn't matter that you strive to be good. And sport is competition, right? I mean, winning and losing is part of it. Um, If you somehow enter that with the preconceived notion that I really don't care whether I'm any better than I was last week or better than my opponent, then how good? good can you actually be? How much can you really be taking that pursuit seriously? Right. So I'm worried if that, if that's the message from an athletic standpoint, you know, those guys embracing that in their studies as well, like, okay, I don't really have to do that good a job building this bridge. <laughs> right. Because after all, excellence isn't that important. Right. Well, I, I don't know if I want to drive across that bridge. To be honest <laughs> right. With, right? So I think that that's kind of the, the common thing. I mean, you don't have to be a great athlete to, to have a great athletic mindset. Right. You know, the same way that you can be Um, you know, I think you asked about the common things that that you see. I think that, you know, the the easy ones are the people that do a lot of things well. The the easy things to point out is their great time management skills, their great energy management skills, their great ability to develop laser focus on a task, but at the same time then stand back and be present. But the bigger one for me is this kind of, inner state of not accepting where they are, that, that they understand that even if they're the best in their business right now or in their sport right now, there's always a better place that they can be. And I, I think the best of the best take it as a personal challenge. They don't benchmark themselves against others as much as they try to realize that I'll get ahead of the others if I just
0: accept ownership myself and try to um, propel myself to the next level. So, And, and you mentioned something that I, I want to get into because time management is important. And I think it's something that's, that's quite obvious in terms of the simple fact that we have 24 hours a day. But something that's a little more subtle almost is energy management. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is something that most of us well, I don't know, I'm guessing here. Uh, most of us don't do too well. Uh, could you explain to us what energy management is and how those athletes, what do they do to manage their energy?
1: Yeah, you, you, you know, I think the thing that you realize if you're a sport coach um, is that it's not just what you do in training that impacts performance, right? They um, even sports physiologists or sports theorists talk about these external stresses that can, from a physiological standpoint, impact your ability to recover as well, right? I mean, you know, if, if you do a relatively easy training session and you go back and have mm-hmm. a knockdown, drag out argument with your, with your family, your partner, your children, you won't recover the same way that you would if you had a relatively stable or, or easier time of rest and recuperation. Right. Um, and the same is can be true for things that, you know, in the old days, old athletes that would go out and, you know, they'd have a great workout and they'd go out, and celebrate with a lot of beer. I mean, you know, uh, not that I'm a teetotaler or anything like that, but you have to understand that that has a price too, right? right. And I think the thing that, that, that all of that shows is that you know, stress is, can come in a lot of forms. There's physical stress. There's emotional stress. There's, there's uh, um, psychological stress. All of those things can impact a person's ability to perform. Right. And you can't and, and they tend to be intertwined, they tend to be um almost synergistic, right? If uh if you have a I'll look the or work the other way, if you have if you have a, a sleepless night because you're stressed, you come in the next morning and you know you have to perform. So what do we do? We drink tons and tons of coffee, which then impacts the next night's sleep. Yeah. And makes you more edgy and disrupts your, uh, energy levels and your, and your vitamin levels and your nutritional levels. And it just becomes cyclical. Um, so I think that all of that is kind of the mastery part of the self mastery part of being able to self care. Right. I mean, I think any, any part of, uh, um, any leadership course that you take or any, any training that you undergo, you, you know, you can't really understand, um, organizational leadership until you've kind of gotten a mastery of self. Right? right. And I think that's, that, that part of that is trying to get a handle on your own, on your own um, personal mastery in terms of how to maintain your own energy levels and self care. Uh, and I know that a lot of us, myself included, don't do a very good job with that.
0: Um, and I'm curious, how, how do you coach that in your athletes as well? I, not as much as I
1: should have. I mean, I'm old, retired now. I've been here five <laughs> years, and I haven't been on the field anymore. And yeah. I kind of wish I I did. I mean, I we we talk about it, but I don't think that I had really ever kind of stopped and thought about um, drawing that direct line. You know, you, you I think the thing I've realized is there's a lot of those things that are are better reinforced if they're explained explicitly rather than just implicitly. And what does that mean? Um, you know, I'll give you an example. I, I, I one of the things we talk about here is is teaching character through sport. I mean, and we and everybody says, "Oh, playing sport develops character." Oh, it. <laughs> All you got to do is watch an NBA game once, and you realize that that's not maybe the case, right? Right. I mean, not everybody that's ever played a sport is the paragon of virtue when it comes to. T- yeah, not exactly. Not, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's not an automatic that if you play sport, you will develop good character. Right. It can develop bad character through participation in sport. What sport does is provide a way that you can exhibit your character, but it's going to be easier for people to understand what good character is. And studies have shown this now. I'm talking about research studies of of sport coaching, that if you explicitly outline what it is that the character attribute means and how it would be demonstrated through behaviors, and then you can reinforce that. But if you know you if we if we talk to a little kid and say I want you to do sport because I want you to learn to be resilient. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> they don't know, right? Right. It's the, the the explicit part is what I mean by that is if you get knocked down, you get up. And then when they get knocked down and get up and you say "way to go, Johnny," they can connect that. And I think that that's you know, from through my career, a lot of it was okay, guys, get a good night's rest because we're going to hit it again tomorrow without really saying, okay, what I mean by that is I mean for you not to go home and drink three cups of coffee so you can finish your homework right. and then expect to get a good night's sleep without understanding that tomorrow that's going to impact the way that you come back the next day.
0: Right.
1: Um, you know, I think that, that 20 plus years ago, now it's almost 30 years ago, maybe. No, it's, 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 and it's, no, it is thirty years ago when the Berlin Wall fell, right? I mean, in, in the old days, Eastern Europe, great sportsmen, right? All these training secrets, training secrets, training secrets. They didn't really have training secrets. They had recovery secrets, and right. and what it allowed people to do is do more of the right kind of work. I I use this at times as kind of a, a sick example. I mean, anabolic steroids, arguably one of the biggest problems in sport right now, um, in terms of of a level playing field, is is doping concerns, right? Everybody's looking for ways that they can gain an advantage through chemically. Right. Well, almost all of them, none of them are magic pills. None of them make you a better athlete. What, all of these um, androgenic aids do, or ergogenic aids, are, allow you to do more of the right kind of work. They make you recover faster. So steroids, for example, and there's a little bit that they do, they can increase water, muscles, and stuff like that, and a little bit of biomechanical differences. But mostly, it's about your ability to do more of the same kind of work. So the code was cracked even in the doping wars that that it wasn't about the work, it was about the recovery, and it was recovery artificially. But in the Eastern Europe, I mean, they had it down to a science where they would figure out what color rooms they had to paint it, what wow. what the temp would, to, in order for a person to feel relaxed and recover better. Now, if you look at the the major work in sleep science, you know, um, what what your sleep um, patterns should be like, I'm not talking about your physiological patterns, but your sleep routine, I, I should say, what time you go to bed, what the temperature of the room is, what you should wear to bed. All of those are really now becoming what you should eat before you go to bed because they realize that all, that the recovery piece is really pretty critically important. Okay. Um, I think the old days of us looking at a person, oh God, this person can really just kill themselves and still come back that, that wearing that like a badge of honor, it's not so smart anymore. Now we realize that you got to kind of engineer right. those ways of, of taking care of and,
0: and, and helping a person learn how, um, what the mechanisms of self-care are. And, and, and I think that's an interesting point. And especially, especially the, the simple fact that, that we need to be explicit about, about what it means to, to perform at a high level whether it's uh, through sport or through work in in our daily daily work life and i, I want to touch upon this point that you mentioned and that's really highlighting the characteristics that will enable success in whatever it is you do now if i were to translate that into like the workplace what is my explicit cue do i look for people in the work in my work setting who are performing at a high level and try to understand what they do it. Is it as simple as that? Or do I need to understand what makes me perform um, at a high level as well? Um,
1: I, I think if I understand your, your question correctly, are you, are you talking about from an individual perspective or from a, yeah, from an yeah. individual perspective, I think it's probably a little of both, but more of the latter because there is a certain, there is certain value obviously to role modeling off of success, right? I mean, I think a lot of successful people have either observed what has worked for other people and been able to learn from the path that they have forged first. There's also the, the great opportunity potentially to have a mentor who's done it already and can help guide you through that. So I think there is value to kind of, um, I'll call it modeling or role modeling. Right. But ultimately what, I I mean, I could role model Usain Bolt every day of the week and say, (laughs) okay, this is what he does in training or this is how his running mechanics look like. And a fat old guy like me is never going to be able to do it completely because we are different creatures. Right. Um, So I think, you know, I, I think that the art would be to look and see what does maybe the, the, the rubric or the, or the template look like around success of what you want to do. Find somebody that has demonstrated that success. S- see if you can identify key elements of it, but then realize that that's a sample size of one, right? And that, 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 that one anecdote of that person's success doesn't make it a scientific fact. Right. It's what worked for them. Now you may have to tweak it. You may have to work it here. And I think that that's certainly, you know, absolutely, definitely at, at the personal level. Right. There are things that other people do that I could never do. I'm willing to accept that. I couldn't couldn't operate in that fashion. But there's also things, a great thing for me right now in sport coaching as I, my job now and is that, you know, I, I talked to a guy today who's a, a great, famous European researcher on children in sport. And he was quick to point out all of his research is around a European model. So what makes a European child participate in sport, as an example, in that cultural context, in that academic environment, in that club system, in that geography with multiple seasons, is radically different than what we would do. There may be elements of it that are comparable. Um, But uh, you can't just can't look at your system and say works for you it's gonna work for me then right. good okay right. i if i just be exactly like him it'll work and it does it doesn't work that way okay. i will go back to one other thing this guy told me today though that i thought was really amazing because i think it, it 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 relates to one of the things we talked about before was talking about how um for one of the things that will in as a great predictor of whether a person will stay involved in sport for a long period of time is that they have competed in the sport at an early age even. And my first response was, Oh God, but we sometimes think that's not a good thing to have kids in. Right. He, he wasn't, he wasn't advocating competition like you and I think, think about, because what he talked about was how, A competition can be around two things. It can be very outcome focused, which is I win or I lose. That's not what he was talking about. It can be a very task focused that I'm going to go there and I'm going to be part of the experience of competition. Right. I can frame the competition so that I embrace the uncertainty. The certainty, you come into a competition uncertain. I don't know whether you're going to outperform me this month in sales than I will, but we have rules and we're going to compete against each other. Now, at the end of the month, if you keep a monthly sales or at the sports match, there is certainty, right? Kids in this case don't like the certainty; they don't like the win or lose. But they love, they embrace the uncertainty of it. They like that task focus, and the ones that have had a an environment where it's structured around that will typically stay in sport longer. And that was a real light bulb moment for me because I think that that's a little bit of the mindset that we that I think we're talking about now about people who are who are really successful. You know, they they focus on the uncertainty of their effort rather than worry about the certainty of temporary check marks or outcomes i didn't i didn't do this i didn't win this court case but i got better in the process and i enjoyed that experience and i challenged myself to get better and they can reframe again then back to be process focused the next time and that that was a pretty cool insight to me about the way that we can that we can both structure from a developmental standpoint programs, but also we can restructure our thinking about it. You right. know, If I, if I can look at that as saying, okay, I'm going to enter this with a level of uncertainty, there will be times when there is certainty, but the majority of, of what we do, there's a lot of uncertainty. And If I can em- embrace that uncertainty and use that as my motivation to get better and better and better and better and better, I think that's one of the secrets to trying to stay fired up and to, and to keep trying to work towards as I mentioned that, you know, kind of your your ultimate goal, really, your vision.
0: Wow, this is really interesting and I wanna dissect it a little bit more. So I suppose what this research and researcher is trying to say is it's the uncertainty that's almost a key factor in deciding um, how, you know, they approach whatever it is they do in life. So uh, help me understand perhaps this is the part where I'm a little bit confused. Cause when you have a like a certain goal, a certain, uh, almost, yeah, well, a certain goal that you need to achieve, I think at least at the very least that's clear, and you know what you need to do to get there, and you know what you have to do to achieve it. But when it comes to the uncertainty of it, how do you how do you figure out if you're on the right path, and or is it just important enough to know that? You're just making progress.
1: Yeah, no, I, 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 I think without a plan, you know, hope is not a plan, right? right. So I think you do. I, I, I think um, I, I, that's a great question because I think you, it'd be very easy to, to say I'm going to embrace the uncertainty and then I'm not going to ever have a plan. Yeah. I think um, I, I've been doing a lot of reading recently around um, uh, systems thinking in business, right? Because it's kind of the same in sports. Um, and and one of the foundations of of stuff like Peter Senge when he writes of the fifth discipline you know the, I think the fifth discipline is systems thinking right right I mean it's embracing the fact that a lot of life maybe all of life <laughs> if you have kids you know that it's definitely parenting is complex you right. you just can't always predict how things are going to go but that's not to say that you just throw your hands up and say you know OK, whatever is, is you, you you can you can put systems in place that will do everything within your control to work towards your desired outcome. Right. By taking into account the things that are that are identifiable, that are that you can if you can develop, for example, a. a kind of a a loop process where if you know that A causes B, causes C, it may cause a few others, but at least you can identify some of the predictors. I think that's pretty critical. And that may be where that modeling comes in, where somebody's charted the way before you, you can see that, okay, I saw that when they did this, it worked for them. I mean, that might be something that you can put into your mind and can help you kind of project, you know, foresight. Right. Um, But you have to have a plan. I mean, you you do have to have a plan, but what you have to, I guess, in coaching, we have this adage where you say, create the plan, work the plan, and trust the plan, right? And I think that that's, if you do that, it is a plan, but that's the uncertainty. Because if you trust the plan that you have um, and the process, you, you can't control all the other variables, but you can control your focus
0: on the process.
1: Right. I hope that wasn't, as I talked about, a loop. I wondered
0: if I'm talking myself into a loop, but I, I hope not. I hope I. I don't. I don't think so, and 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 I'll, I'll explain why. Um, so essentially, if we were to codify it almost, um, and and I want to bring and I want to bring it back full circle to athletes because you know that's pretty much your bread and butter, being a sport yeah. coach. When you train them, you know, you have a plan. Let's say you're trying to train them for the 100 meters. I mean, you basically have... you. Any coach knows what it takes to be the best 100-meter champion. But I suppose the uncertainty also comes with... Learning to deal with the uncertainty probably also comes... or In a sense, can't be trained when, for example, you get injured mm-hmm. just before you know, the finals, or if you deal with a a sudden loss in the family, all these things that you cannot control, because the training, I guess, is pretty certain, you know, you know what it takes to be a champion, you've seen others do it, your seniors to the best in the world. So there's some clarity there. But as I'm, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, the uncertainty refers to all the other things that all the variables that aren't always within your control, and it's about learning how to manage it in a way that allows you to keep focus.
1: Yeah, and and, and, I'll, and I think a good example
0: you use is 100 meters. I mean, imagine
1: if you had just an outcome focus in 100 meters, in the Olympic games, they line up, and the first three or four competitors all go under the existing world record. And you are one of them, and you run a lifetime best that's faster than anybody in the world has ever run before. Now an outcome focus, if you're the the bronze medalist, you might say, Oh my God, my life, I wasted. I, you know, I spent the last eight years training for this one moment and I'm third place in the Olympic games. (laughs) When if you really pause and reflect on it and put it into perspective until 10 minutes ago, I ran the fastest time that anybody in the world had ever run. So can you think that that's, a failure? I don't think so. I mean, it can be a disappointment and it can be a setback based on the process or the, the outcome at that moment. But the bigger picture is, is that was not a failure. Um, so I think that those are all kind of things that I think coaches can help with, but athletes can, can start to, you know, kind
0: of take some ownership of those as well. And I think this is a is a great segue to a question I really want to ask you. And 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 it was something that uh, you know, especially when when I was growing up, I used to play football, you know, for school for, uh, and and stuff like that. And one thing I one thing I realized, um, you know, I noticed that there are people who perform really well, and there are people who have I would say almost God given talents uh, and. But the problem is they hated what they were doing, and my question to you is: Can someone reach that peak performance if they hate what they're doing? You know, because sometimes you know you have you, you I mean you have God given talents. Yeah. But can you re- and and if you put in the training and the hours, do you think it's something?
1: I can- I, I think the answer may be that they can be successful, but. My gut is they probably won't reach the peak right right um, because it, look there's there's no substitute for talent right I mean right. you know I, I i think that a talented person starts with an advantage um, uh and and there' are certain in this in the case of sport I, I'm not so sure i'm i'm not I'm not verse enough in Things like math and science, whether, you know, somebody goes in with a fixed mindset versus a gross mindset, they can learn more. I mean, I I don't believe that somebody can just say, oh, I'm not good at math. I mean, I think you can, but there, there may be some people that have, and I think there's reason to think that there are some people who have easier learning it, but look, I mean, I could dream all I want of being in the NBA, yeah. but if, if I'm not two meters 15, right? (laughs) I mean, Do you know, I heard something a few years back as as an example, that if you are under the age of 50, anywhere in the world, and are seven feet tall or higher, and this may not be absolutely true, I'd have to go back because I haven't Googled it, but as I recall this, this stat shown, if you are anywhere in the world over seven feet tall, which I think is two meters 13, under the age of 50, there's a one in six chance that you played at some
0: point in the NBA. I read about that, actually.
1: I mean, so, yeah. look, I mean, the reality is is that there's probably nobody in Singapore that's over seven feet tall. Yeah. So we... There's a person with seven, that's seven feet tall has an advantage, a greater chance of making the NBA than somebody that isn't. Right. Somebody that's born with uh, a high percentage of fast-twitch fibers, for example, has a has an advantage. Somebody that's born built like a house probably has a better chance of playing in the world cup of rugby than yeah. somebody that's built like a mouse. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so there are, you, you can't argue with that. I mean, yeah. there's certain in this in sport in particular, there are physical attributes that a person can be born talented. I think there are probably people that can, maybe that could be the same and they're just charismatic or they're bright or they're, they're bright enough that they'll be successful and maybe very successful but can they reach their peak? Not sure, because the thing that I said before, I think if you hate what you do, how can you embrace the process? How can you embrace every opportunity you can to try to get better and better and better? And the only way I think you'll ever reach your peak is if you're constantly striving for your peak. So they may look like they're at their peak because they're better than everybody else around them. But my gut feeling would be is, yeah, you know what? If that person had really wanted it and owned it and owned the fact that they can continue to get better, yeah, they probably would have. I mean, and they could have. Um, so I, I, I won't go so far as to say they're hope for all of us because I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna, I am never going i am never going to i can not make up for not having talent. Right. But I do think that that levels the playing field, doesn't it? Because we have seen people that are not supposed to be as good as they are, but they get that way because
0: they're just they want it more. And it's interesting because every logical fiber in my body agrees with you, but I also see people who genuinely hate what they do, but do it really well regardless and I guess the reason why i, I you know I want to bring it up is almost because I think therein lies the secret source of how to reach your peak performance, right yeah because people who hate it have found the formula to still perform at a high level and it's almost worth worth understanding what that is right because you know mm-hmm. it's easy to do it when you have passion right because and you really feel that urge right i mean if if you know if i had you know ronaldo's talent you know it, it and 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 the same passion for football i mean i i couldn't see any other option but football but when you were, almost like for example the choices in life or the circumstances in your life have led you down this path you didn't really like but you found a way to excel at it i mean i think that's the interesting question and i you know i want to explore yeah i i
1: I wonder i I, do you think that they legitimately hate it forever i mean or do they grow to like it or tolerate it it's a little bit like that age-old question you know do you marry the woman you love marry the woman that you love or do you love the woman that you married right Right, i mean i think there could be there could be cases of people that go into it and go i don't really know if i want to do this but they end up having some success so they grow to like it right i I wonder if maybe they don't put on the air of like oh i still hate it but they deep in their heart maybe they
0: grow to like it i don't know i'm not sure Maybe, but and and let's say we eliminate those guys right and there are there are people that you can even if they don't say that they don't like it you can tell it in everything else right their body language the relationships they have with people for example they're overly stressed they take it out on people by the end of the day you know they come back to work the next day or they go back to whatever it is they're doing and they still do it because i don't know there's something deeper for them
1: is it learned helplessness though i mean is it is it just that uh, they come back the next day because what the hell else am I going to do? I mean, it could be, I don't That's know. That's
0: true. But learn helplessness doesn't doesn't help us understand why they're still performing at a high That's level. That's true. Right? Yeah, you know, and, and, I, and I, while we're sitting here talking about that, I, I, I
1: and I don't know if it's related at all, yeah. I, we'll never know, but I wonder, is you look at somebody like Robin Williams, the famous comedian. I mean, here's a guy that obviously made millions and millions and millions of people very very happy right one of, one of the funniest men on earth and yet was obviously not a very happy person himself i don't i don't know i'm sure there were people that knew that i'm positive that there were but the public didn't i mean there's a guy that i wonder if we'd had a chance to ask him do you do you like what you do i wonder what his response would have been i don't know yeah. i mean cuz he certainly gave the impression that man He's making me happy. Therefore, he really, he's got to be the one of the, he would be a, you know, my response when I heard the news was, you know, a week before, if people give me a list of 10 people in the world that they'd most like to hang out with one-on-one, just to kind of kick it, I would have said Robin Williams, man. And the guy's a little bit older than me, my generation, you know, funny guy, always makes funny voices, funny guy. I would have loved to sit down and had a beer with that guy. Hell, it might have been the most depressing thing you could have done because (laughs) the guy clearly, maybe when he went off on his own, all he wanted to do was be reserved and sullen and quiet because he just, he, he, he was not by nature a happy person. Right. So I don't know. I mean, that's a great question. I, um, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I, I think what I've seen from a sport perspective of kids that have been very, very good, but you know, their heart wasn't in it. And I, maybe, maybe I just, in my own mind, I kept going, God, but if only they loved it more. than <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's, maybe that's just your coaching cop-out.
0: But, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting one, right? Because it's, how easy is it for those who love what they do and who are talented to excel? but. You know, I think what's even more interesting are the ones who you know found a way to almost systemize success even during the times where it was tricky and and i and i think and I think to part b of that question is how did you as a coach or or maybe you can just cite examples of your athletes how did how did you get people to train or to do things that were particularly difficult or that they didn't want to do so that they could reach that success?
1: Yeah. Well, ultimately that's sport, right? I mean, the things that make you the best are the things that suck the most, right? (laughs) They're, They're the least fun things to do. Um, because they're, they're, if it's by design and it's not just punishment is you're trying to find the physiological, system that needs to be strained the most or you're trying to find an athlete's weakest link and and try to train them to close that loop or close that hole by taking advantage of it in a training in a training session so you're picking at a sore, right? Um so I think I think there's got to be buy-in. I mean, somebody's got to understand that it's not punishment, that it's, you know, there's a reason. And if it's in the sport of track and field, it's typically based on the best science that we had. Um, but I think that comes down to communication. If it's in a non sports setting, look, if I just give you the, you know, the mushroom treatment and continue to keep you in the dark and pile crap on you, then you're not going to be nearly as happy as if right. I were to come to you and say, I'm going to give you this task. And I know it's going to feel like this is the worst thing that's ever happened, but I need you to understand the role that this is going to play in, um, in, uh, our ultimate goal, there's, I think, a better chance that somebody's going to say, okay, I understand why I'm doing it. problem is when you don't understand why you're doing stuff, right? right? Then you don't have any ownership of it and you're just going through the motions and I'm, yes, sensei, I'll do what you say or yes, right. sifu, and I'm going to do whatever you tell me. Um, now, I will, here's, I'll, I'll, I'll share with you kind of one of my other interesting kind of thought processes that I'm going through right now is is as I work in a in the public service, and I'm in a, a people industry, um, started to do stuff about leadership coaching and and effective, you know, interpersonal relationships, and I realized that sports coaching has a, a different bent than a lot of other coaching, because ultimately, I think it's my own opinion. I haven't published it. You can publish it. You can copyright it. Maybe I'm sure thousands of people thought of it. before. But if I'm a sport coach and I'm coaching you, the expectation is, is that I have a certain level of knowledge that you don't have, right? Right. That's, that's my expertise. I'm the Sifu. You're the, you're the, the, the student, right? Um, and so even when I coach you, As much as I want you to buy into it and I want you to have ownership of it, ultimately there is some reliance upon my level of expertise. That if it's a timeout at with five seconds left in a competition, who do people look for? The coach isn't gonna say, Oh, what do you guys think we should do? You know, I mean, there's this certain level of 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 assumption that the coach has more knowledge than the person that they're coaching, the coach E. Right. I'm not sure if that's the same dynamic in business. I'm not sure that a CEO, for example, knows more about everything that their company does than every person in the company. Right. So their relationship with somebody that's a specialist is different because they coach them and they but they have a different a different you know, kind, there would be at no point that I would expect the marketing guru, if, if the CEO came from an engineering background, although he understands the function of marketing, I wouldn't I wouldn't expect that at some point, that at at 11:59, the the marketing person is going to look at the CEO and say, you've got to tell me what to do. You're the, you're I mean. There's just a different dynamic, right? Right. So I think that makes it a little bit different. And, and it's made my experience set a little bit different as well. I've got to be more conscious now of the fact that I'm not in in, in in situations all the time where the assumption is, is that I have a higher level of knowledge about what we're doing than people around me. So it, it changes the dynamic. Okay.
0: Yeah, I guess that's interesting because in the work environment, it's almost... It's almost it's almost unlikely that you will find I mean cuz in, in the work environment managers may be good managers like they know how to manage people but they do not they may not have that expertise or that subject matter knowledge that you would require for certain things but if would you say it's important if you know you're in a work environment to to find someone who has that subject matter experience to almost be that coach for you?
1: I don't know. Maybe. I yeah. mean, ultimately, if you're the best in the world, there aren't very many people that know more than you, right? Right. Um, but maybe. Uh, and you chose an interesting word. You described a, a person as a manager. I wonder if there's a difference between a manager and a leader in that point. Because a manager may, may have to have some level of expertise, but a leader may not. A leader right. may just inspire a person to take ownership themselves. But to answer your question, have you, have you read anything or heard anything by this guy named Atul Gawande? No. Uh, Atul Gawande is a Harvard medical school professor and he's written two books that I've read. He's written a lot more. He wrote another recent one. His most recent one I think was about, uh, death and dying, but he's written, uh, he wrote a book called the checklist manifesto, Okay. when he was working with the World Health Organization about minimizing post-surgical infections globally. And then he wrote a, a a book called Better, where he studied about what, and it was from a medical perspective, what made people better. And he's done a lot, a lot of, he, he writes for the, uh, for the New Yorker magazine. All right. And uh, sends some cool TED Talks. He does one about coaching. And he says, Why do doctors not have coaches, you know, um, singers do musicians do athletes do somebody that's kind of gone before them that can take a, maybe be a critical friend or have some look and say, and he said, doctors don't do it. You know, when you become a doctor and after, maybe after you get out of your residency or internship where people are still kind of being graded, um, How come they don't have coaches how come doctors don't have coaches and so he went back and found an old retired surgeon to kind of watch him and made some comments about uh the way that he held his elbow in a surgery and the way some other things that he did and he found it very valuable so i think there and and i think that 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 probably in a business setting that's probably what the whole executive coaching and life coaching boom is is a result of that but in other technical fields I'm not sure that there is that much. Right. I mean, I think it's more focused on leadership rather than continuing to hone your technical skills. And there may very well be a very big place in that that we're just not kind of identifying.
0: I guess, I guess what would be important to our listeners now is, is probably also just to understand when it, when it comes to you know, the top athletes that you've trained, is there a blueprint for their success that we can almost mimic?
1: Yeah, I'll give you a couple, and and, the, and, and the, that I can that I can kind of draw on. Number one is is their ability to again manage their effort and to be able to go gangbusters, but then at times take their foot off the pedal and re- regenerate and recuperate and rebuild. Um, kind of their ability to to keep it into perspective. Um, the other part is that's along the same lines is their ability at times to zoom in with laser focus on what they have to do, but at other times to zoom out and see the big picture. I think that's another very, very, very big thing. Um, uh, and, 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 and I think finally I would say there are probably a lot more, but the biggest one would be ultimately this sense of ownership that they realize that, um, their own performances was going to be based not upon the quality of coaching or upon, uh, at the end of the day, if they're at the Olympic level, everybody's almost a comparable gene pool. It's going to be how much they put into it and how much they own their performance and how much they're willing to take it in on themselves and commit themselves to it. Cause ultimately they're the ones that are going to be on the stage performing. So I think that I think I would say that's probably the biggest one is this is this you know willingness to say um this is me and i'm gonna I'm gonna embrace this and I'm gonna do what I need to do to get it done and I'm gonna keep trying to get better at it
0: right yeah i and and if you could highlight i suppose one thing that you've noticed people on uh, your 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 trainees so to speak that have done that have led them to failure so to speak um and and the reason why i I ask is because it's it's self-awareness is it it can be a difficult thing but if you could highlight one point that perhaps or, or maybe you have a few of things that they they didn't do right or they did wrong that we could watch out for in ourselves
1: Yeah, well, ultimately, it'd be a very terrible coach if I didn't point out the fact that probably every failure they ever had was due to me as their coach. Right. Um, uh, Because part of our job as a coach is to really take that distant thirty thousand foot or or kind of perspective to to try to chart the course. So ultimately, whatever failures they had, I've got to own them myself too. Um, Poor planning, poor design, uh, but sometimes just things go wrong. Um, I think the greatest the, the, the greatest thing is usually um, when that kind of energy balance is out of whack. I mean, poor performances almost always happen from lapses, a physical lapse that they're not at their physical peak because they're maybe overtrained or they're undertrained. And again, that's a combination of coaching and, and, an athletes it could be an athlete's commitment too, or it could be that they're physically, they're, they're not kind of emotionally at their peak, um, that they didn't go in as prepared as they should be from a mental perspective. Um, and again, that's a combination. It could be that, 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 that the coach or the leader or the manager didn't kind of outline the possible scenarios as well as it could, or it could it may just be that the person chose to just blindly follow rather than take ownership of it and lead themselves. So I, I um, th- there's no one or two certain things. I think it's part of it is deep reflection. I mean, I, I think anytime you do have a setback, if you don't, if you don't sit down and figure out what, what may have contributed to it, then you've lost an incredible opportunity. I mean, and I do think that there are times that you just look at it, your own personal setbacks or if you're a leader or a coach and, and something's failed, you can't say exactly what it was. You, it may just be that shit happens. I mean, you <laughs> yeah. don't know, right? Um, but that can't be the answer all the time. Some of it has to be this, you know, deep reflection and say, what could I have done differently? What could I have done better? What did I do too much of? What did I not do enough of? Right. And that might be the most valuable learning process from
0: whatever setback you have. I think that the two points that really resonate with me, um, based on I guess my um, goals and uh, achievements and lack thereof, almost is um, energy management, and also I suppose deep reflection. I think for me personally, my reflection tends to happen like as it should after the event, but I think it happens too far after and i think knowing you know when to really pause and reflect and self correct is really critical in this because i mean speed is almost just as important as as that self reflection right to be able to course correct uh, as quickly as you can and i think the and i think those two things you mentioned really resonated with me and i and i think it's something i have to be conscious of almost. Yeah, yeah, you, you know
1: one thing that i think you that you, that you, you may mm-hmm. want to throw in there is is that you know, we do a lot of time reflection on action, but there is, there are opportunities for reflection in action, you know, while you're doing it. Now, I guess we could call being present, right? Right. I mean, there are instances where in the moment, if you are present that you can say, Ooh, that might be the sweet spot between an action and a reaction that I could change the course of how it goes. And that's really, that's, that's kind of the, 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 the art of, being able to make those quick reflections and to call back upon your past experiences to be able to kind of, um,
0: make a a good educated guess of how to respond. So last question, Troy, um, what would you recommend anyone, um, to do to really start the ball rolling to get them to peak success? Like what, what should be the first thing we should be thinking about or how should we even be thinking about this, this challenge?
1: Yeah, I mean, right off the top of my head, I, and I, and I have never, I didn't prepare this answer, so yeah. I, they may not be the answer I'd give you in an hour, but right <laughs> away okay. I would think would be number one is, as strange as this sound, um, it's going to be glib, but be selfish. Think about yourself. Manage yourself and, and your, yourself first. And that's not, I don't mean be selfish in the, in the sense of just taking care of yourself, but be selfish in realizing that if you're not, if you're not, if you don't know yourself and you don't know what makes you tick, you're probably not going to be as good a contributing member to a team or to a cause as you should be. So self-mastery is probably the very first one that I would, that I would, point to as being something that somebody has to do right the other one that i would that i would point to would probably be um embracing this tension that i talked about between understanding where you are part out of that self-mastery would be a really deep kind of sense of where you are right now and then understand that if that's where you eventually want to be then there's not much of a journey right but right Ultimately, ideally, you've got a higher goal that I want to be better than I am right now. And you've got to try to embrace the fact that that's the tension that exists. And that tension is what's going to pull you towards being better and being a performer near your peak. And then the last piece is probably creating that plan. And part of the plan will be by identifying your own strengths and weaknesses and working on your strengths and, and working on your weaknesses. But the other p- parts may be role modeling. We talked about what have people done that have helped and then coming up with a plan. Right. What's your what's your system? How are you going to systematize your development to get from where you are now? And I think without any of those, you're just going to go through the motions, right? right if I'm right. not going to look and see, okay, where, where am I right now? What makes me tick? How good am I at what I would need to do? How in the hell are you ever going to get better or or know where you eventually can be? And if you don't set something down downstream or downrange that you want to get to, well, then you're already there. So retire, go, right. go sit on a beach, right? <laughs> right, right. Um, And then again, the, the third part of that would just be that if you don't have a plan, you know, hope is not a very good plan.
0: <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it works sometimes, yeah. but that's called luck, right? You're right, uh, and it's worth reminding ourselves yeah, of that as well, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, j- just so that I clarify, because uh, I think I uh, might have been confused with the second part. So it's self-mastery. And the second one is? The
1: second one was developing, embracing that tension between your, where you currently are and where you want to be. Right. And then the third so, one is trying to put together a plan.
0: All right. Yeah. It always seems easy enough when we say it. Oh, then when we finally do I'm it. i 58 really.
1: years old. I spend 20 hours a day trying to figure out how to do that. So I'm, <laughs> not, I'm not saying that I'm a master. Yeah. At it, but but I, I, I the older I get, the more I realize that that's probably what in order for me to close close my life's race
0: well, those are the things I right. need to do and must it be in that order uh
1: yeah, I don't know that's a good question I think um i I think between the first two you maybe could change right I mean you could maybe outline what it is where it is that you want to be right um but in and that 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 visioning may be the first one right but the tension piece would probably require you to have some deep introspection right Because then you'll know where you, what your current reality is versus where your desired outcome is. Right. So maybe you could set that vision. I don't know that it wouldn't make much sense to put together a plan first if you don't have an end in sight, right? Right, right. So maybe that's why I put the plan and the system kind of as the last one, because otherwise you're just kind of, you're in the old uh, ready, fire, aim mindset. You got (laughs) to have a target in sight. But yeah, I suppose they could be done maybe simultaneously. Right. Um... But yeah, maybe maybe you, you could change it. Yeah, I don't know. Now you've given me something to think, I can think about tonight. <laughs> yeah. I don't
0: know. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I was just curious because I, I guess self-mastery, for, I would argue would probably be definite. You can't change that because it's really important to understand what makes you tick, you know, what works for you, what you're good at, blah, blah, blah. And only then can you really start planning a life that I, I assume would be fulfilling for you. And and and. And and I'm maybe I'm also drawing from my experiences, right? The things I did well were always the things that you know uh, that I understood about myself.
1: They first. weren't the things that
0: you hated. <laughs> maybe I can't say it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but okay, like uh, I give you an example. When I was a kid, right, my my dream was always to be a professional soccer player, football player, and and okay, let's say we we got let's say the. Let's talk about the three things, self-mastery, understanding where I am and where I need to be, and the third one is planning for it. So I suppose I had the self-mastery in a way right, uh, in the sense that I kind of knew I wanted to be a football player, and I knew what I would need to sacrifice in order to get there. But I think where I let myself down, and I actually have no regrets on that because, in in hindsight, I think it was a better decision for me. But I think understanding where I was and where I needed to be was not something I did I did diligently because, in a sense, that I thought like, oh, you know, I talent could take me through through fifty percent of the way, and you know, I just work a little bit on my fitness. But I never understood that that it. Where I needed to be was actually a moving target. you know once I got there, I needed to get somewhere else, Whereas for me, once you know you start getting a few accolades, you think, okay, yeah, that's where I need to be so like I would say for me understanding my what makes me tick was really regardless of whether I failed at the plan was really critical for me because it kind of almost fueled me to at least you know pursue it yeah and i don't think i don't think i would pursue things that i wouldn't be passionate about and and i think only you can only really understand that if you really understand yourself and what makes yeah. you vibe yeah. almost yeah. good for you yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah but yeah that's just my two cents <laughs> yeah, good it's <laughs> yeah. great more than it's more
1: valuable than two cents that's a good <laughs> that's a good
0: one right Well, Troy, thank you so much. Yeah, this was fun. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it was really helpful. I've learned a lot and I hope uh, my listeners and our listeners learned a lot as well.
1: Sounds good. I look forward to hearing it too. Yeah,
0: and I look forward to having you back at some point too. Always. (laughs) Thanks. Thank mm-hmm.